welcome to another episode of Money for Nothing, the podcast about music and capitalism. I'm Saxon Baird with Sam Becker as always. Sad news. RIP to music journalism. Yeah, it was okay, not really, but it was fine <laughs> while it lasted. Yeah, yeah, it was good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, uh, news no. came last week. The Pitchfork, the music criticism heavyweight, will be merged with the men's magazine GQ, also known as Gentleman's Quarterly, um, leading to layoffs. I think like half its staff. Uh, a lot of layoffs within, and a lot of like yeah. of the people who had done um, a j- really good job of like shifting Pitchfork's culture. Yeah, yeah. Um, according to a memo from Anna Wintour, the chief content officer of Condé Nast, you know her. Uh, apparently, without without taking off her glasses, she uh, basically told uh, the Pitchfork staff that they'd be folded into GQ. Um, it's not exactly clear what that means, but I think this news has led to, or it's clear that this news has led to a lot of lamenting about the deteriorating state of music journalism and like really i mean kind of reflects also journalism writ large um with a lot of trends this year of widespread layoffs continuing i think actually like a week after during the same week we got the pitchfork news um the la times like laid off of like half its staff or something yeah a big chunk um, and then there was a you know big layoffs at npr music recently i mean last year oh, now yeah. but um right uh yeah it yeah. just uh just kind of slashes in, in newsrooms across the across the spectrum right yeah and and so um but like in in the music journalism realm it, it seems like particularly like a ninth level of bleak uh i mean the mood on the internets was uh i think like peak ex- existential crisis when it came to music journalism um and like obviously we're going to dive into all that and what what was behind the changes the pitchfork and like what it reflects you know not only um the trends in music journalism we've seen, but also the music industry and the digital media itself. But uh, yeah, I think it's probably good to just take a moment and, and uh, sort of lament over Pitchfork ourselves. I mean, uh, on this podcast, we've obviously interviewed numerous Pitchfork writers and contributors. Um, I've worked with and known various folks who were, or were, I guess were now, past tense, part of Pitchfork. And um, obviously it's pretty bleak. A lot of talented writers out there doing cool shit who are going to have to... Uh, turn to the freelance hustle game which i is like already um like there's a shrinking pool of 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 positions for music journalism and really like cultural writing and like where you can write and actually make a living so yeah it's rough and i mean on a personal level it's just a little strange because i mean i feel like pitchfork was like such a major piece of the puzzle when it comes to like uh, i guess the community of like obsessive music fans that i've surrounded myself with i mean like it seems to always come up in conversation when you're talking about something i mean whether it's like you know, complaining about it or praising it. Regardless, it was like part of, it sort of like was a part of the, the the conversation that makes this sort of whatever you want to call it, music nerd community. And yeah, it's very strange that, that it's- uh, I mean, it was, an insti- be, it was an institution. And I think that a lot of people yeah, like a newer had a institution lot of- That we kind of saw develop like, like in the last 20 years. It's like we saw it become what it was, you know? So it's kind of cool. Yeah. No, yeah. No. And I think as a lot of times people would complain about pitchfork a lot. Um, but it was like there in like a solid stable way as like a major music publication. And I mean, this has been like talked about to death, but like, you know, uh, in, 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 in the U S at least like there were clearly big music publications of previous eras. Um, Rolling Stone and Cream in the 60s and 70s, uh, things like uh, The Source and XXL and um, uh, Spin in the 90s um, and early 2000s maybe, you know, clearly like the much uh, bemoaned death of of various indie papers, uh, like city papers. I mean, I was a particularly big fan of the Boston Phoenix, which I thought was just a fabulous, fabulous set of of record reviewers. Similarly, the Village Voice, (laughs) the Onion AV Club, um, which was... Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, Onion AV Club, I mean, of the... (laughs) super fun of the of the like journalistic institutions that really shaped my like thinking and and critical perspective on music the onion av club was probably the biggest one for me actually um one of my first credits actually my first ever bylines really yeah i did a did an interview profile of uh the the uh i think oregon-based folk artist laura veers but anyways (laughs) um but really i think that those were all kind of declining and on the way out um at a moment when Pitchfork was rising. And so like has really been the definitive 
music journalism platform like of of like the, the general millennial experience like in ways both like incredibly stereotypical and good and bad um but like and i think that this is just like the sense that everyone has which is that like there's a huge difference between like you can really not like there being a major like music centered publication like that but the sense that it could go away is just mind-blowing to i mean totally totally predictable at some levels or like like it's not something that people thought was outside of the realm of possibility um but at the same time like just because you know something could happen like doesn't the difference between when something when it, when it does really happen it, to, to a certain extent it, it feels weirdly like twitter right where twitter was a place that defined a certain sensibility and that everyone complained about all the time and then when it really did finally become mostly unusual unusable there's this sense of like loss that even if it was like not always perfect it was like it was mine not all not always perfect well it was there was always something to talk about that's the thing about pitchfork like whether or not you championed it or disagreed or were neutral like it was there was always something on there to talk about and like I don't know how much that like holds resonance anymore, but regardless, I think it's obviously like a shame to be like. Well, actually, so it, it's a shame to be without it. But actually, what I wanted to say actually is that it's it it's actually not going away, which feels like even like a sorry, it's a weird like worse fate in a sense. Like I, I guess with like Bandcamp, there's like I mean it's a different platform obviously, but just to use that as an example, it's like it getting sold and there being layoffs it like still exists and it's still operating as Bandcamp. You could still get like the weekly updates of new music. There's still some articles. Bands still have like their pages on there. And like, yes, who knows what it will become, but for now it's the same. But with Pitchfork, it's like, it's this weird, like you're just going to become a section. I don't think we know. I don't think we know what's going to happen. It's so bizarre. It's so bizarre. (laughs) Yeah, it's so strange. And I mean, I, I guess it's like maybe how like, I guess we can assume... Or we can we can not assume, but we can probably. It sounds like it's going to become like the way that like noisy was to Vice, maybe. But like it's TBD. But it just feels like such like a weird R.I.P. to another yeah. solid like music yeah, well, publication. You know, that, that had some canceling issues, but uh, but uh, like feels. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um, okay. Yo, <laughs> but anyways, it feels like such like a bizarre. The, the the weird like folding into GQ feels like such it's like I wish they would just sold it you know what I mean like just sell it to someone else well I mean and I think though that and this is really I think what we're going to talk about here today to a certain extent because I actually think that like that folding into GQ is really like really interesting and and because because I also feel like um you know looking at the 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 kind of wave of sadness and anger and nihilism that like erupted around this pitchfork news like i know i was trying to think through like what i could or what we could add to that discussion that hasn't been covered quite so much because i feel like there's a lot of like real sadness and like i said and it's totally all legitimate but i think that that like that folding into gq and the weirdness of it and the specificity the hot of take it coming on. is actually like is actually really interesting. No, it's really interesting because I think that it's a, it to me raises a bunch of questions, both about like the specific structures of journalism in this moment, and about like the, some specific questions I think about like what music journalism is for and what music criticism is for in this moment. That um, and I think that by like focusing in on that on that as like the concrete basis for like uh, thinking about this broader situation it's actually like really really useful and maybe a way to like throw some throw some um instead of saying like oh my god that the the it's the end of music journalism it's like oh my god music journalism it's the end of a certain kind of music journalism i think probably and like what but like what actually comes like what like what it was folded into GQ and 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 I think that there's some there's a there there that I think I want to talk about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, and like I definitely have some ideas. I mean, in some ways, it even kind of like if when I th- try to think about it more positively or like I don't know, positively is the word, but try to thinking about it like a little bit more 
complexly like i think like one thing that came to mind was the way that like newspapers used to be structured where they had a section they had the sports section they had the music and culture section and it's like i i it's hard for me to like believe that anna wintour and company have really any fucking clue what they're doing and i'm sure this is very profit motivated or lack of profit motivated but like it, it is one idea i did think of i was like well maybe this is just going to become like almost a structure that's similar to newspaper where it's like it's more sectional instead of like its own freestanding uh, publication but um i don't know if gq is the place for that but um but maybe yeah so, so to move on but like i think maybe it's a good idea to kind of paint a quick dirty picture of the sort of unique story and history of pitchfork um and how it changed uh along with the media landscape uh that eventually led to this news just to give a little bit of background before we dive into this for people who maybe don't know like you know pitchfork actually it's 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 quite like the uh dare i say uh american dream story <laughs> it like literally is like the the sort of trope of the guy who starts something and someone's in like his parents basement is is actually ryan schreiber from pitchfork who actually did start pitchfork living at his parents house in chicago and like was basically a teenager and um, i guess it was briefly located in minneapolis as well but anyways over the next like 10 to 15 years what was basically like a music review site that kind of focused more on like indie music and like underground music um expanded its offices to Brooklyn and it like ended up having like 50 plus employees and they launched like a music festival and for like a good decade and decade and a half it was like this very much like cool kid online like music mag that lasted for years really completely independent and was able to sustain like 50 plus employees if, if not more and like that's a pretty unique period not only in sort of right it's a unique story but it also feels like this very unique period of like the internet where like you could have people buy ads on your website <laughs> instead of like the whole targeted ad bullshit i mean that's the one thing though i actually feel like funnily enough like it's not a unique story i would push back on that no that time it's, period though no no that time period was unique but like i i would say to me it, it's not so much a unique story in that like this new generation comes online millennials who are writing and blogging and and using social media in different ways and there's this host there's like a cohort of kind of edgy digital first publications explode into these markets that get big readerships that then can use advertising you know budgets and that then get really big valuations and like i don't know exactly like whether or not pitchfork took on investment but certainly i know that other sites think about Vox, think about Vice, think about um, HuffPo, right? Think about the Daily Beast. No, no, but they're like, right, these like websites that blew up out of relative, you know, sometimes they've got, all those sites have different histories and different levels of initial funding, but the sense of them blowing up from very small into large digital brands that were really highly valued and that were understood to be competing successfully against like the established media structures between I'd say 2003 and 2013 um and Pitchfork was the music one yeah no but it was an interesting like period that's what I'm trying to say it was a very unique period of time which is like it's much more difficult to do that now unless you like get serious funding right well it's also because or it's under the banner of something like Substack yeah I mean it's also because I think that this was web and we can think about it in terms of like yeah, trans yeah this is this this the, like pitchfork essentially started in web 1.0 yeah and this is no it was part of the transition to web 2.0 no, no no yeah i think i think that's exactly right it's like pitchfork is a is part of the the the, uh, the open garden right it's web 1.0 structures that blows up and, uh, and i think a lot of these journalist enterprises blow up on the back of social media but they do it just before social media starts to enclose everything right so this is like right before most people read the news on facebook don't and don't just like link out of facebook right you know the sense of of where the yeah, profits right, right. are and where the advertising money is and what happens over time clearly is that like <laughs> to journalism writ large is that the old model fault like which is you know classic newspapers f starts to fall apart and this new model 
doesn't remain financially sustainable as certainly also because a lot of their uh the growth metrics and like uh uh the projected value of these companies was insane and vice is maybe the most famous example of that where it's that they were like vice is going to be a media empire and it's going to be valued at billions of dollars and then it's like they it's they didn't turned out that like sending like drunk kids to like war zones like a like the aesthetic shifted and that wasn't cool anymore like like they like we were like we like we don't like 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 vice would have like sent someone to gaza and it would have been horrifying like 2011 vice and it's like that's not good like the voyeuristic shit that they were putting out was like a very 2000 late 2000s irony vibe that's sorry maybe that's a different a different point but i I think that just generally like that just generally things shifted the amount of valuation that these companies received was unsustainable and the business model shifted and advertising revenues fall across the board yeah it would yeah but i think going back to this vice thing i think it's interesting just use it as an example it is interesting because like all these companies did act like they were going to be like the next media empire and and it, yeah, it, it was like riding that gravy train, but with like very little. I mean, and maybe this is just common, but like very little sort of uh, look towards like the sort of nearish, far off future. <laughs> like this is just the well, way they, it's going to yeah, be always. Yeah. And, and they didn't and like see Vice how decides to change. buy up nineteen yeah, blocks in Brooklyn we- and RIP Glasslands. <laughs> just close every yeah, close, close every, every venue. venue thank you and now Brooklyn. they're probably selling yeah. all that property now oh, god anyways vice, a very new york this, complaint, yeah that's true like, vice like <laughs> vice came in and just purchased every single venue in brooklyn and closed them for reasons that like no one understood god. at the time <laughs> yeah so annoying um but also so like Pitchfork, I think, also interesting, like, like, was one of the more institutionalized of those, right? They have a successful music festival. Um, they uh, A fairly early music festival, though not one that ever got as um, glammed out or successful as Coachella or even Bonnaroo. But maybe, by, maybe, maybe on purpose. Probably on purpose. Yeah. No, but my point is just that, that this thing was like, Pitchfork was fairly institutionalized. And my sense is that so less, and partially I think because it was focused on music and music has like a built in top maybe, right? There's a, there's a, there's a real ceiling to a publication that remained pretty much dedicated to music. I mean, there was a couple, they had, they tried to spin out a film site. They tried to spin out a a visual arts site at various points. Um, But uh, news to me, none of those ever really, (laughs) none of those ever really took it, but my point being that that maybe just because of the ceiling, it was never like the like the it was not going to pitchfork the whole world. I don't think, and so it it did seem like in comparison to a lot of these other websites, which like overreached and started to crumble, and were even starting to crumble by like twenty fourteen, twenty fifteen. Like that, it, like things had already started to to to, to like the pivot to did. The pivot to video had already started to like not pan out. Pitchfork was actually like relatively stable. It, it felt like, and so that was one of the reasons why it then got bought. And I think that when it got bought by Condé Nast, it was kind of seen as like a um, as a trade off, right? But like as maybe as like another step towards further stability, because Condé Nast like has a series of different specifically focused and specifically targeted publications that it had been able to maintain over a long period of time while like leveraging its in, its scale and professionalism. And so like, I think it was clearly like a lose. And it didn't have a music one. And it didn't have a music one really. Right. And it didn't have a music one really. And, and so I, I it was seen, I think at the time that, while like you lost a certain level of independence, there was a potential beneficial trade-off with the purchase by Condé Nast. And like clearly there have been problems, but you know, a lot of times we read about someone, you know, a newspaper gets bought and then gutted immediately, right? Pitchfork was bought almost a decade ago. It was bought in 2015. And so there's been a minute of this. Um, and that's why I actually think it's useful maybe to like, 
having like discussed both <laughs> contextualize this from the framework of all of the other music publications that really hit problems during this period and 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 you know we mentioned it but i, I do think like rolling stone changes its format a bunch of times it almost and maybe even brief i don't i don't know if it ever actually disappeared off newsstands but like really struggled and has gone through multiple rebrands um spins folded into online and then basically folded enemy gets purchased uh, a whole host of these small music publications just don't really make the transition i mean there's a couple of like brave holdouts like shouts out to the quietest of course god bless the quietest. consequence of sound stereo gum those are all still going stereo gum still those are all still yeah, going yeah. um the wire which is in, like just maintains like uh in some ways like the the model the model and like <laughs> the conde nast model which is you have a thing that people can buy it's expensive and you maintain a subscriber base and like it won't make a lot of money, but like it'll make some money. Yeah. So there's this absolute decimation of music journalism on these music journalism uh, uh, spaces. And we'll come back to that later. We've talked about kind of the, the decimation of traditional newsprint, the collapse, the rise and fall of these new digital uh, millennial focused operations. So I actually think taking at this familiar angle of looking at less looking at Pitchfork from the perspective of Condé Nast and thinking about this sale, the, the purchase, and then also what's been happening within Condé Nast, I think is a, an important way to think about, um, to think about what's happened at Pitchfork and what's happening with music journalism more generally. And, and, and I think that's important because like, Music journalism needs, in order for people to make livings at it, these things need to be sustainable. And Condé Nast has like has many, many, many issues, like 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 <laughs> a ton of issues. But uh, in the words of like one one article I read, it's like Condé Nast's checks still clear and time, which was the it's like bigger better competitor in like the 90s and early 2000s is essentially bankrupt and that like Condé Nast is still a surviving media company in a in a space in which many many other media companies of like similar length and longevity and reputation have faltered and fallen by the wayside and so not saying that Condé Nast is good like look at everything that happened with Bon Appetit look at what they've done like with selective firing of people in this all kinds like i'm not pro conde nast but thinking about it as like uh any journalistic enterprise that manages to continue being in business in these challenging times is interesting and so like i don't think conde nast has any fucking clue what they're doing i think they're fucking treading water (laughs) <laughs> this is like so i actually don't and, and like the thing is i probably i think the actual the fact is that they couldn't sell it i think they probably would sell it if they could and they couldn't sell it or they didn't sell it because it's a bad branding it's bad on branding because Condé Nast is because because to sell for Condé Nast to sell a brand is to show weakness and so what they why do didn't they merge it why it? didn't they merge it with a new yorker it's a different audience is and it? The, and the New Yorker, is it? And New Yorker, and the New Yorker already has a the New Yorker already has a music music the, writer. But like, it's a different audience than G fucking Q. But the, but the, but the, also, New Yorker is like a legacy brand. Like GQ is like constantly like changing its sort of like branding and style and everything. Kind of, it's like still a lad. It's, it's a the, glossy lad mag. Well, this is this is but this is what I th- yeah exactly. And this is what I find bizarre about it, and why I find it comes out to be such like, a see. Strange, I don't know. I mean, I guess uh, like result of like it, it, I think it's such a strange like. Uh, ending to Pitchfork or like the way is that it is that it's it, it's basically folded into a magazine in which like it doesn't necessarily fit <laughs> the, the you know and it, it and it's like GQ doesn't really have a music section probably so they're like oh it, it could go in here right but that's like that's bizarre and then the thing is, is like they can't they can't like they can't get they can't just fo- sell it because that shows weakness or maybe they can, literally can't even sell it, it or maybe nobody wants to buy it they can't, they don't can't they don't want they're not willing to just fold it because that means that they are folding their only music publication 
I don't. I think they're flailing. I don't think. I don't think they have any clue what's going on. And I think that actually, like the the problems with Pitchfork are probably more representation of what the problems in fucking the music industry and also just like general media, it, the the media landscape as it is, in the sense that just it's all so decentralized now. That's really like the reason why. Like I don't think people there's people don't. I mean, I still think that there's like a cultural reason for like why we need. I mean, I appreciate some sort of filtering system for new music and cultural reportage but like i don't think it holds this kind of weight where we're waiting for the latest review and rating of the new radiohead like people just don't give a fuck about that anymore that's a cultural shift sure sure no and i think that's true i mean the question is how much did people care about it to begin with well i mean i think that like you know like when it was an independent site in like 2005 it reported that it got like 200,000 readers visits to the site like a day which is like for an independent site in 2005 about that like doesn't cover anything but like underground independent music I don't know seems good but like it was a different time then you know I mean I think it's even I mean if you just think about like we were talking about this we were talking about like the top 50 or the top 100 uh lists that were like all over the internet and they're all so vastly different and you could go back like a like 10 years and it's like everybody basically has a general consensus on like what the top five top 10 records are and now it's just like all over the fucking place <laughs> because it, it's just it's you know as, as we've talked about on this podcast and you and i have talked about personally it's just so decentralized at this point and i just don't know how you you can continue to maintain this sort of status as like a publication that holds some sort of knowledge and weight that you know but it doesn't have like no the, what yeah. you do what you do see that and this is why and this is why i think the Condé nast example is really interesting is because certainly like they were always about and all of those brands right since the 50s uh they've got this series i mean since before that since the 20s they've got this series of yeah. luxury brands targeted at different audiences and so, so for a couple like vogue like maybe you can still talk about the whole world of fashion but like a lot of it is just like you're saying uh, thinking about the New Yorker, which is like still surviving and thriving to a certain extent, although they did just like cut their talk of the town staff, which was one of the big like music reviewing parts of it. The the New Yorker has survived because they found a way to monetize an audience that came with that publication that cared about that publication. So a question with Pitchfork. I mean, there's that infamous quote, which is when they buy Pitchfork, they're like, this helps us round out our portfolio with millennial men aged like 25 to 35, which is... Yeah, the, the quote is actually from, from the chief digital officer at the time was, uh, we're, we bring a very passionate audience of millennial males into our roster, which, of course, caused all kinds of problems. Which is like <laughs> a brutal... Yeah, especially given the 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 real legacy of misogyny at early Pitchfork and the like transformative efforts of a generation of brilliant writers uh diverse writers to like change that and to like make new yeah. spaces at the highest end like the, the most prominent and th- thus the also the irony yeah exactly 100 and thus the also the the tragic irony of like the fact that it's getting folded into gq it's like oh Condé Nast still views you that way <laughs> like still views pitchfork that yeah. way yeah no no which is which is terrible but like also like i mean the 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 question is, like, why couldn't you... The Pitchfork audience is still, like, a valuable audience, it would seem to me. And and so your point about, like, you need to cover everything, it's like, no, you just no, need no, to... No, no, it's no. No, it's not that I need to cover everything. It's that it's like, it's rather the opposite. It's impossible to no, cover everything. No, I, I get that. And so the only I get way... that. What I'm saying is that, yeah. it, it's that that as a problem doesn't matter to me because all you need is an audience of people who continue to care what Pitchfork says, and that's your... Yeah, it's a niche audience. And that's your audience... And it doesn't strike me that, like, the millennial audience, male or not, has <laughs> followed Pitchfork. Um, and it'd be interesting. I mean, who knows, like, to what extent. You mean in? You mean in, it didn't follow Pitchfork, like, into the last, like, in the, has dropped off precipitously in the last, like, five years? No, I mean, years. that was the question. Like, we don't know what their readership is like. And we don't know whether things have really dropped off there. I mean, it would strike me that Pitchfork still has a tremendous amount of cultural cachet and, like, millennials and some of this might just be like market dynamics at the, the the biggest generational sense which is that like unlike gen x or the boomers as millennials are now hitting their 30s and 40s they may not be able to comfortably afford like 180 dollars subscription in like a 
oh, I'm doing that just because like I, uh, you know, sometimes like to read it and it's like a marker of, of culture in the same way that prior generations did with the New Yorker. But it does strike me that what's crazy about the GQ thing is just like, it strikes me that Pitchfork's audience is still really, uh, it's still, it's a, it still has a lot of cultural cachet and it strikes me as the kind of loyal audience and loyal readership that like you could transform into a paying audience the way that like that's whole GQ's, sorry, GQ's, that's uh, a cutting ass, like whole MO like that's all they're doing now is like trying to take dedicated readerships and get money out of them and not try to go mass, but actually go like targeted specific. And and so that's what's like, again, the weird thing about the GQ-ness of it, which is A, like if there was a fall off of readership as the site like diversified and got better and started covering more different kinds of music like i don't know if pulling it into gq is going to make those people come back it's also yeah yeah, and like it seems like you would drive away everyone who valued what the site has been over the past five to ten years like i like bizarrely started receiving gq in the mail this past year like i didn't sign up for it it's not addressed to anyone who lives in my house i don't know how to make it stop coming but like i glanced through it and it's like it's not a bad publication it's just like for like people like who really think about themselves as men and who are interested in Hollywood and like high end yeah, 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 goods. Yeah, yeah. Like it's yeah. a weird it's not but it's like it's not poorly written and like they do yeah, have these like, like New Yorker yeah, style like yeah. oh you gave someone like ten thousand dollars to write this five thousand word piece over a period of four months like an, journalism. Do like an ayahuasca trip in like fucking like peru or something yeah totally totally but like i think to go back to one just to just interrupt real quick i think it's also interesting to note that like pitchfork never was i mean it did, did have the pitchfork review but it never really was a month it never was a public a monthly publication it remained an on main like a mostly like just an online publication which i don't know for Condé Nast, like, what else is just online? I mean, I guess there's been switches. Like, I guess, what, like, is it... Teen Vogue. Yeah, now Teen Vogue. Like, I guess, like, it's Bon Appetit now, just, like, videos or whatever. But, I mean, it's just, like, but, like, it never had a legacy of, like, being, like, a like a publication. So, I think that also might be kind of reveal kind of the way that, like, Condé Nast people, like, thought about it was that if it's already just mainly, like, an online publication anyways, then we'll just fold it into a more legacy like a stronger longer legacy magazine and then it'll be online and also in print it just it, i don't know i just don't know it was always like a little bit of a weird marriage because i because and like i always feel like you know it does feel like they never really probably valued it in the way that music fans valued it and they probably never really valued it the way that they would value some of their like legacy titles and it just makes this whole the whole thing just be like such a strange ending but I, I don't – Well, but, I mean, that's – but that's a thing. Again, back to, like, that ending, right, is your take, which is always a, a validly cynical one, Saxon, which is that this is fundamentally fl- – it's uninteresting. At some, it's, it's tragic and kind of tragic comic, but at some level fundamentally uninteresting because it's a company flailing that doesn't know what to do with its brands. It has a handful of – legacy brands that have managed to make the transition to the digital environment and that are now the kind of like their load stars. So Vogue and the New Yorker, the New Yorker makes money. Um, and like these, and these, and these publications probably financially carry the smaller brands, I assume. Well, well, so this is the other thing is that Condé Nast is owned by a larger media group, advanced media, which owns a handful of regional papers, which, and that's the crazy thing about, despite like the amount of of ink that's been spilled over the decline of newspapers, even if it's a declining business, it's still a business that makes a lot of cash. And so, I mean, doing research for for this episode, it's like they run the stat, they own the Staten Island Advance, which is the newspaper of Staten Island, which apparently made in the 90s, made more money than basically all of the Condé Nast publications, like almost put together. And like was able, the reason that 
Vogue was able to just do whatever it wanted at any cost was because the Staten Island Advance was paying the bills. And I don't know to what extent that's still true. I mean, Staten Island Advance is still a newspaper. Um, but I, I do think that, like, that kind of in support of your point, which is that this, like, this was always high-end cultural capital being kind of supported by actual functional businesses. And now it's a handful of functional business like, publications supporting other ones. I mean, they had Bon Appetit, but that clearly blew up in their faces because of incredible, like, <laughs> racial insensitivity and diversity issues. And that 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 this is like fundamentally at some level uninteresting because it's like it's a flailing company. It's trying to tighten its budget. It did well two years ago. It didn't do that well last year, and it's just slashing things. And like this is like a slow circling around the drain for the whole thing. And that's one story, and it might be right. But for the sake of argument, <laughs> I think it's also worth thinking about like what they are even trying in as much as they have a plan, <laughs> like what it might be. Because I do think that in a funny way, like GQ Pitchfork might be less, like they are very, very different, but they might be less polar opposites than they seem on the surface. And like the reason that is, is again, <laughs> glancing through a GQ, you have a lifestyle magazine, right? And it sells things that you should engage with for a certain lifestyle and 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 stories that it thinks based on that vision of a lifestyle that you should uh, that that pe- people who are interested in that lifestyle will like and be and care about. And in that mode, where like you're saying, music criticism is no longer necessary in the way it once was to sort through the vast array of music that we have. And it's not necessary on, on, on two counts, I guess. On one count, like you just said, because there's too much of it. Like, it's too many different kinds of music. It, the center cannot hold. There's no reasonable top 50. And so, like, a position of judgment over the whole world of music is fundamentally impossible because you like country and I like Latin trap. And, like, those are just different top 10s. And on the flip side, because we have these algorithms that actually sort what music you like and I will like and send us new music that you like and I will like pretty efficiency. Not perfectly, but pretty efficiently. And so like they're getting it from the top and they're getting it from the bottom. And so like the older vision of like what music criticism is for no longer holds. And the older criticism is like, sorry, the older criticism, the older vision, right? The older vision is like, it, it helps inform you. But that may leave like, so what music criticism for now? Well, and then also, and also, like, I'd just like to add also, like, as we've mentioned last year on one of our pods, it's just like old music, more like nobody, I won't, I won't say nobody listens to new music. Clearly people listen to new music, but old music is listened to more. There's a change temporality in music discovery, yeah. especially through algorithmic like avenues. Yeah, totally. But, but. I always feel like I'm about a year behind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like cool. The the year ended. Now I can listen to all my all the music I missed in 2022. <laughs> but but I I, I want to like go like I thought that 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 if that vision of what music criticism is for is kind of gone, but we still feel a need. Both you and I, and I think the general public, not, not the general, clearly not the general public, a, the the audience of Pitchfork, right? People who still read Pitchfork. The audience of money for nothing. <laughs> yeah. You, you beautiful, beautiful freak. <laughs> right? Like, if there's still a feeling that music criticism is useful, it does, but the legs of what everyone, or at least what I had previously thought of as, like, the kind of widely accepted vision for what music criticism does have been knocked out, but it's the chair is still standing. It, it seems to me that, like, then maybe music criticism is doing stuff that we didn't think of it or it's working in a different way than I had thought it did. And in some ways it's, it's less functional and it, it's a little bit more about like, it's about lifestyle. It's like a vision of an ethical consumption of music almost like to, in order to enjoy music or engage with music or to signal to other people through your consumption of cultural goods 
that you care about music in a certain way. You need to be an informed consumer of music and that engaging with this website allows you to be an informed consumer of music. And from that perspective, maybe it's not that different than GQ where reading GQ allows you to be an informed consumer of various like male focused leather goods. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like, is that wrong? I mean, I don't, I don't agree with it. I, I, why not? I think that I don't. Well, first of all, like I, I think I, I really, I think that, um, I think it's much more simple than that. I think in 2015, when Condé Nast bought Pitchfork, he said it in the tweet. The C, this whatever chief financial officer, who the fuck it was, like Fred, whatever, said it in the tweet. He was like, "We're bringing on uh, an audience of millennial males," which they clearly felt like they were pos- they were missing, <laughs> apparently, or whatever. And so, like, they still think about it that way. And, I mean, maybe they have the numbers to back it up. Majority of the readers, maybe still male. I don't know. But they just felt like th- this is where it goes now. And I think it's more like the fact that it hurts the brand to get rid of it because they don't have a music publication. So they want to maintain some sort of music publication. They probably can't sell it because that also hurts the brand if anybody even wanted to buy it. And I think it's much more simple. It's just, like, it does bring some modicum of readership and I wouldn't be surprised if GQ online was actually hurting. And so they're thinking like, well, this will help the numbers for GQ.com. I think it's probably like much more like profit driven than this. Yeah, but in that GQ. Cool, but also like, and, and, and maybe not wrong, maybe not wrong, but I don't think that that's the motivation behind the, this, this change. But it, it is an interesting subject to consider that the millennial who and at the age that the the millennial that grew up reading pitchfork and at the age that the millennial is now is someone who would also be interested in <laughs> nice leather goods and what hair products to fix their receding hairline and what ayahuasca trips in Peru are like sure i i'm not going to disagree with that but i don't think that's behind the motivation and i also think it's sort of by me also you just said like their their receding hairline which means that they're men yeah no truly i mean <laughs> gentlemen's quarterly right exactly yeah i mean i know real gender essentialist over here but like but uh but like also i think that it's interesting because the conversation around pitchfork is that music journalism is dying and then pitchfork somehow lost relevancy and somehow like was failing at least in the eyes of Condé Nast and like whether or not that's true or not it does reflect a sort of change in the way that the music industry has also been operating in the last year where there have been like a number of layoffs Spotify's changing its like payment platform obviously like Lucian Grange is like seeing like the number the percentage of like major artists and getting streams like lessening and all that so it is this sort of interesting sort of like there's changes in the music industry and maybe like a way to sort of like go into the last third of this show is to sort of think about how like the not only the role of like music journalism currently but also like how the role of music journalism in relation to not necessarily maybe pitchforks failure because i mean i think that that's like that's in the eyes that's corporate politics and that's also in the eye yeah that's yeah that's corporate politics exactly that's in the eyes of like the the investors of you know whatever alliance media where the fuck it's called and like and Condé Nast and more about like the role of music music journalism in relation to the the changing landscape the growth of AI like in the in the music industry and maybe that's like the way to kind of like maybe to like wrap this all up in a sense because you might be right on that what you're saying and I think it's an interesting point and it's like why people come to listen to this podcast is for takes like that but I mean personally I think we're just gonna have to leave it there because I think that like I think it's just a, a big huge slow corporation that's constantly flailing and I feel like historically no, no, I, I just finish like historically I feel like this has been like an ongoing thing where like actually if, what's interesting just made it continue on that point a little bit is that we keep seeing these big corporations legacy companies making these moves that are like moving towards like whatever it's like the latest digital trend oh you got to do video now right and now this is like now it's all you got to do short form you got to like have like the videos be like viewable perfectly rectangularly like or whatever the fuck it's called like on an iphone you know and there's all these moves and they last like five years maybe at most 
and then it's on the yeah. new thing and it's like they're constantly chasing the carrot and for me it's like the places that kind of like are still sticking around are places that aren't chasing the fucking carrot i just want to like pick up on what you were saying saxon because i think it's a really good point and maybe what i was trying to think about right when we say like what is music criticism for and and what does it do in the world is like split it into two parts because at some level and i think that this is at least some of the the feeling of 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 like almost trauma (laughs) that has erupted online is that music journalism is doing two different things and is connected to two different industries and has different levels of meaning and role in those two industries and like for a while it seemed like those could go together and now increasingly it doesn't and so like from a journalism perspective where the goal is to sell papers and to or subscriptions or and ideally ads against both of those though you know the most successful of these publications have moved away from that whether that's the new yorker or or like the wire right which just it's I'm sure there are advertisements in The Wire, but like that's an expensive magazine to subscribe to. I like I've gone in and out of subscribing into it over various years, and like when I don't subscribe, I'm like I don't think I can afford to pay ninety bucks for a subscription, you know, a hundred bucks for a subscription this year. Plus, I've got all my wires still to read from last year. Uh, <laughs> right. So on one side, and I think that in terms of like music criticism as lifestyle reporting, right? That like this, that that that. In, in, in that, like, it's lifestyle reporting in, in that the people who read it want music criticism to be part of their lifestyles. <laughs> like, and caring about music in a certain avenue, in a certain perspective, is part of their lifestyle. In the way, in some ways, you can almost argue that it's, like, it's a funny long-term holdover from, like, the 50s when everyone believed that they had to have an opinion on Beethoven. And they all had, like, a series of, like classical music records bound up like books on their bookshelves that there's this like capital R romantic vision that like engaging with art with a capital A in a certain way like enriches and deepens life and to have a certain kind of lifestyle like understood as like a relationship to society a certain level of intellectual activity blah 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 like engagement with music in a music critical mode is a valuable part of that and like that I, as someone who deeply loves music and really loves music criticism, like don't want to reduce it to that, but like that's not different fundamentally. And I think that one of the things that like recent, the rise of other media to major forms of cultural conversation, in particular TV, to maybe a slightly lesser extent video games, um, have like, uh, right, where like having deeply felt opinions about those have come to be really culturally important like the the um it, it shows the ways in which music criticism and the, the the life right is a lifestyle and so from that perspective from a journalistic enterprise or a media enterprise like Condé Nast you could see being like well it's a lifestyle brand it's a weird lifestyle brand <laughs> and we're that not we sure that we don't but understand like, but like yeah. let's put it in with like our other no. lifestyle brands right no i and like don't, yeah don't get me wrong i think actually i think that aspect of it is completely correct i think it is a lifestyle it's part of like you know if, you know we always the the saying is always music is communal yeah but music is communal and let me see your record collection you know <laughs> and and like you know, and I mean, you could even see this, and oh I mean, it's it's funny because it's so ubiquitous now that maybe people don't even notice it. But I mean, just the growth of like bars that are like listening lounges, or like the growth of just like bars that have nice cocktails, they have succulents. It's mostly white and uh, has a lot of mirrors, and there's a guy. The bartender has to flip the record every forty-five minutes. I mean, like just the growth of that. It, like ten years ago, used to be like. Uh, unusual and now it's like almost feels like a common style of bar 25 minutes saxon you got to flip the record every 25 minutes come (laughs) on mike (laughs) no but usually he's already in the middle the funny thing is is what happens here at these places is that usually you have like he needs to actually make the fucking drinks and so you just sit in silence for 20 minutes waiting for them to flip the record but um yeah but like uh 
yeah, it's completely a lifestyle now. And but it's particularly you know, it's like in the growth of vinyl and like vinyl, you know, and the re, the the not growth. Of, yeah, I guess the the return, the to resurgence, like, the resurgence. Yeah. yeah, you know, and even now, even fucking cassettes and like yeah, all this shit. Of course, yeah, of course, totally. It's a way to define yourself, of course. But so like that's on one side, right? And then on the other side, I think is this sense that also I think maybe. Um, should be interrogated and maybe we can end, you know, wrap things up by talking about it from this perspective, which is that music criticism does something fundamentally important for the music industry. Right. And that's actually really interesting to me because it's a much, that relationship is not built into the economic models behind music criticism that much. right? Right. Like, Sure, record labels used to run a lot of ads and they're clearly, they're, they're touch on each other. But like, the it seems to me like a lot of the discussion about Pitchfork and a lot of the kind of bemoaning of its potential loss and, and, and its folding are like, what's going to happen in the music industry? Who are bands going to pitch? How are like certain kinds of bands going to get heard? And this sense that like music criticism is doing something vital for the health of the music industry. And that's, I think, really interesting because that's probably true. Certainly, I think it's important for the health of certain sectors of the music industry. Like, there's the kind of the band camp to pitchfork pipeline of like small tours buying, right? Like, a fairly. I don't think pitchfork is moving. I mean, clearly, pitchfork was able to move the needle at its height on a handful of artists who were breaking from one category to another. So, like, pitchfork uh uh championing like oh this is easy arcade fire animal collective like no all no, those no no but that's no 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 i'm saying like like but those but they were do, like but they also they also did do that though they did and they, you know they absolutely like those, yeah. and they helped break those artists um but also i'm just thinking about in terms of like large scale pop records like even at its biggest like arcade fire wasn't moving massive numbers of records yeah but them, like, they're them, like them covering like the the Taylor Swift album that Jack Antonoff produced. Yeah, no, but I'm saying like, like I feel like they helped break like Wayne went like right like when Wayne was like not break Wayne in terms of pop radio, but break Wayne into a new audience of like what like they covering like the Drought Three and being like, <laughs> right like there's like ah, yeah. like certain kinds of moves like where actually then like the cultural cachet would bring in new audiences. But but for me, so like it can. But for the most part, pop stars aren't relying on Pitchfork. No, Taylor not, Swift yeah. doesn't care. Beyonce no. doesn't care. Drake Absolutely doesn't not. care. Nor do the labels. Nor do the labels. But but at a sm- a, lo- a lower level, it does seem really important. At a lower level, where like a little bit of press can help you get a different set of touring circuits. Like it does seem like. These 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 kind of channels and these social networks are really really important. Well, which makes me think though, and maybe this is where you're going, but it makes me think that like maybe one of the reasons for the lessening sort of importance of a place like Pitchfork or music criticism to like these labels is the is the rise of streaming in the sense that it just becomes more important to be on a playlist or be like sort of like gaming the algorithms than to like get a fucking popular review on Pitchfork as an upcoming band. Yeah, I, I think I think I think that can be that can definitely be true. I mean, I also just think that the 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 labels are running tighter. Many things are running tighter. Certainly, like, but also, like you were just saying, like, there's a lot of black boxing here. I mean, I think you're assuming a declining relevancy of Pitchfork when actually we don't know if that is why these cuts happen. We just know yeah, that truly. we just know that Condé Nast is had a bad 2023 and did a bunch of cuts across the board, right? cutting all yeah, kinds exactly. of stuff and that's i think that like it's that that's like keeping that in our minds but also on the journalism totally. side of the equation because what's totally. interesting to me though is that actually thinking about music journalism as something that emerges out of something that's integrally tied to the music industry is not how it's been set up economically, but if we think about it as actually a vital to a sector of the music industry, I wonder if it maybe opens, and this is like the rare moment where like pushing back against doom and gloom <laughs> a little bit, maybe a yeah, rare moment sure. where actually like maybe 
There are many reasons why the critical apparatus around music was centered in journalism. Some of it was like they were the only ones who could print papers for most of the 20th century. Like you needed a press. Some of it's like you need, you know, you relied on record company money for advertisements and stuff. But like you, you know, that the people who wanted to write about stuff tended to go. I mean, some of them ended up, I guess, like as A&R people and labels, but like people who stuck in journalism, like quad journalism, like ended up ideally writing for bigger and bigger publications. And like, that was the industry they were located in, but it doesn't seem like that's necessarily the only way it could be. And it doesn't seem like if in fact the music scene is going to be, if it's true that the music scene is going to be infinitely weaker or much weaker, or significantly weaker, without something like Pitchfork, or without a vibrant music press, and it's true that there's still a market for this, maybe the trick is like trying to figure out a way that you could locate that in the music industry <laughs> instead of in journalism. Okay. Like, okay, so that, that sounds weird, but like thinking about, I don't know, like... If all these indie bands need a music, uh, if all these indie bands need a place where they get written about, like you could imagine, like a a, a band owned. <laughs> no, because no, you need no, what you no, need. No, the, the... That's not the no, no, no. This is what's gonna happen. No, this is gonna happen. Is that like? No, this is gonna happen. No, no. All, there's gonna be an influx of too many fucking substacks, all right? Because everybody's losing their. Well, that's job. Good. that is true. And but and so what's cool about that is that like, and you're already beginning to see that is because there are too many fucking substacks already, and everybody's losing their job. You're seeing essentially a repeat of how places like Stereo Gum, Consequence of Sound, and Pitchfork formed, where you're getting a bunch of writers who are passionate about this, and they're getting together, and they're like, "What if we took like combined all our efforts?" I mean, the Tone Glow. Yeah newsletter is like a perfect example if you don't subscribe it's pretty awesome um but yeah like and that's and i think you're gonna see more of that where you're gonna see these sort of which is really what you saw not only like back in the blog days but what you or how it developed out of the blogs but also like what you kind of also saw like i think in the 2010s with i'm blanking on the name but i remember there used to be this one music website that also like links to like 30 other music blogs and it like I think you're gonna kind of take a return to that where essentially like it's going to be more of a collective of many writers who are finding themselves unemployed, but there's still an audience, there's still a market for this, and they're gonna kind of come together. And maybe the most ideal part about this is they start their own fucking pitchfork, and in ten years when they have two hundred thousand readers, fingers crossed, they don't fucking sell to fucking Conde Nast. Well, but the problem <laughs> now that's more idea. How does that work economically? I, who no fucking knows, right? But the, I mean, the, I'm just saying. Like, does it, are they able to make a living? The problem with that, but I think that's probably what we're going to see in the near future. The problem with that is what I would call like the twenty-five to thirty problem, which is that yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's possible to do some unsustainable stuff when you're twenty-five and your cohort is twenty-five and everyone is twenty-five in the whole world and there's literally no one who's older than twenty-seven alive. But, like, eventually that's no longer true, and people, like, want to have st more stability in their lives. And so, like, I do feel like that's what something – that's what institutions like Pitchfork allowed to happen is that people have, like, a paycheck that runs and that they're not as worried about it and they have more security and – No, no, completely. And, like, I mean, then that's the ideal and goal of, 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 I'm sure, already these – sort of loose alliances of substacks and blogs but, but and i guess what I'm, I'm saying is is and again this might like uh, this might be a truly stupid idea and i think saxon you think it is but but like the record industry maybe oh. not no 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 hold on hold on hold on hold on hold on if like David Israelite and the songwriters or like if Merlin and the independent distributors, if you actually feel like you've been coasting for the last 20 years on there being a publication like Pitchfork that a different industry was supporting. And maybe the point is that music journalism 
shouldn't be considered something that's like a part of journalism where like the goal is eventually to be the pop critic on the New York Times. Maybe the music, maybe music journalism is something more inside of the music industry, which to a certain extent we all know it is anyway, right? Like <laughs> those incestuous connections that get like bands placed and stuff that everyone's always been complaining about, like suggest that it always was that way. It just, the music industry wasn't ever willing to pick up the check. And, like, maybe there's an option where it's, like, you either need to pick up some of the check or there won't be this. And maybe the big record labels are, like, totally fine. But, like, for smaller labels, that might be actually a problem. I mean, that might work for Gen Z and younger. And I can't speak for that generation. I think that the readers of Pitchfork, and once again, I'm making a generalization. Maybe I'm wrong. But, you know... The, I think millennials are defined by this obsession around authenticity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and independence. And the thing is, is that like they just won't buy into that. But they and won't buy in anything. They, do they, buy won't, into it. they won't subscribe. Well, on, they, no, they do buy into it to a certain extent in the sense that like plenty of them attended Red Bull Music Academy events because even though it's being sponsored by Red Bull, it did maintain a certain sense of authenticity because the events that were put on by Adam Shore and company were like so clearly not trying to get you to buy a Red Bull. <laughs> you know, like like a huge queer rave in a warehouse where like a like literally there was even like there was like a neon sign that was just like a huge penis shooting cub like behind the bar and you got free red bull but like that's it i mean there was nothing trying to show and it was like badass djs and dudes dancing like in leather in like cages i mean like like no it was it was was not that red bull adjacent some of those events yeah exactly yeah and so the thing is is like okay yes like at some level I just think millennials are super obsessed with this sort of this idea of authenticity and like a willingness to participate with like um, brand labeled stuff only goes so far, and 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 it, and and it can't be as obvious. Now that might be different with Gen Z. That might be different for the previ- the next generations. And maybe what you're saying would work, but I think that like it would have to thread a needle that is. Uh, let's just say the major labels, I think, have not shown the willingness or ability to do that yet. <laughs> no, 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 you're right. And it's it's also the thinking about millennials and their relationship with the internet and substacks is so much of the modern internet. Some of it's just like social pressures, you know? Like, by which I mean, Pitchfork is free, Stereo Gum is free, yeah. Much of the Quietest is free. And like, that's how websites were understood to function and so because they were free and backed by advertisements um and and of course as we've been discussing like the advertisements start to go away and it's a crisis and one of the things that's interesting about Substacks are that like people subscribe to them like partially because it's just a different and this is like very human it's a different social form right right and the expectation is that you get some stuff but you want the whole thing you subscribe to the you subscribe and so there is a question where some of this like in terms of that vision of what you're gonna get is like the kind of blog to consortium again is whether you do it but this time everyone has to pay and you say if you want to read music journalism you have to pay for it and I do wonder, like, if Pitchfork... Very market-driven, market-driven, like, approach, but I mean... I mean, but, like, that's what makes things sustainable. And, like, I do yeah. wonder, like, if Pitchfork had been a magazine... I mean, it wouldn't have worked, right? Like, they tried to do the Pitchfork review for a second, and, like... But that if there was that monetization all the way through, right? The space between Pitchfork and The New Yorker collapses a little bit. Because I actually, I would love to see, like, the Venn diagram of under 45 subscribers to The New Yorker and readers of Pitchfork. And I bet you that there's a a lot of overlap. Not 100%, but a lot. (laughs) Not older, but clearly. But, like... And so I just wonder, like, and the the big difference there is that everyone always knows that to read The New Yorker, you have to get a subscription, a digital subscription or a print subscription, and it's expensive. But to be a person who reads The New Yorker, 
you subscribe to it. And that just wasn't true with Pitchfork. And I do wonder, again, thinking about the Substack theory, which I think is, is clearly like what's going to happen to at least in, in the immediate present, like if the new for the new generation to be an informed music person once again you need to either you know get all your stuff from tiktok or <laughs> but if you want to read music criticism you pay for it maybe that's a slightly more sustainable model i mean who knows but yeah and i think that maybe that kind of answers our question around whether or not Pitchfork was successful at Condé Nast is that that's also another option that Condé Nast could have decided was that we're going to put it make it you have to pay to read the reviews and clearly they felt through whatever market research they've done that that wasn't going to happen <laughs> I could once again I could be wrong but like it, it you know people weren't going to pay for it which is an unfortunate way to kind of end the show but I think that that's kind of the reality that maybe is facing music journalism and music journalist which is the question of will people pay for it because right now that seems to be the only model in which it's a sustainable career and yeah i guess we'll have to just wait and see uh when we get the uh the music substack uh blogging alliance <laughs> the music it's it's the, it's the the music writers workers alliance like <laughs> yeah yeah right yeah former former employees of pitchfork um okay that was a bit freewheeling but we're gonna tie a bow on it um obviously a lot of thoughts a lot of feelings <laughs> a lot of feelings yeah i mean um subscribe yeah. to quietest the one thing I, yeah 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 god man the quietest amazing how long they've just been able to to maintain um yeah and introducing me to this new irish folk neo irish folk shit that's pretty dope anyways okay um rate review us please we don't make any money um <laughs> music by language see you soon bye